This is The Engine Room of Democracy, a podcast series that explores how the rules and values of constitutional democracy work every day in our government and in our lives. Here we will explore major questions facing America. How do we keep government institutions accountable to citizens? How do democracies control military force? What is lawful warfare? How do we enforce it? How do the courts enforce their judgments? How do we honor the right of privacy while our security forces use electronic tools to track down bad guys? I'm your host, John Hamry, here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Each week, I sit down with remarkable individuals who had senior government positions to discuss these questions. We explore together what it means to be a government of laws. Hello, everybody. This is John Hamry, and I welcome you to this latest podcast edition of The Engine Room of Democracy. Today, we're privileged to be able to have Dana Chipman with us. Dana has a remarkable history. He is an Army lawyer who rose to become the Judge Advocate General for the Army. Now, that is the senior uniformed legal officer for the Army, and very significant, very prestigious. And since that time, Dana, when he left the Army, he found himself pulled into the federal judiciary. And he is a very senior official now with the Federal Judicial Center. And what we're going to discuss today is how does the federal judicial system work? Americans know kind of how the president functions. They kind of have an idea about how the Congress functions, but very few Americans have real insight into the functioning of the federal judiciary. And so that's going to be our topic for today. Dana Chipman, welcome. I'm so delighted that you're here. Can I ask you to begin and help our listeners understand what you do? What is the Federal Judicial Center? Well, thank you, John, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you on the Engine Room of Democracy, and I look forward to the discussion ahead. The Federal Judicial Center is an independent agency in the judicial branch. It's called the third branch of government uh, in some cases. Some call it the least dangerous branch. Some call (laughs) it the most functioning branch. It just sort of depends on your perspective. But uh, the Federal Judicial Center is an independent agency founded about 50-plus years ago, And we're charged with two principal tasks, conducting research, typically directed by the committees of the Judicial Conference, to help further the efficient and effective administration of justice. The second key task is education for both judges and the court staff that comprise our system. And John, interestingly enough, the federal judicial system is fairly small. It's a nationwide system, but our system, you know, consists of about 16, 1700 judges nationwide and about 30,000 federal judiciary employees, again, systemwide. And our caseload, again, substantially smaller than state courts in many of the systems of the United States. People don't tend to think about it because we have this kind of Perry Mason kind of a mentality about judges, but judges need 
you know, support, they need education, they need training, etc. How does the Federal Judicial Center play in that? It's, it's a good point. We bring judges in when they're confirmed. There really is no straight path to the federal bench. Many judges may have been assistant U.S. attorneys or U.S. attorneys. They may have been federal defenders in our system. They may have been lawyers in private practice with big firms handling civil litigation or white-collar defense work. They may, in fact, be law professors. So there really isn't any standard path to the bench. And because of that, we focus on giving all of them, at the start at least, an orientation to their duties because, as you know, they handle both civil and criminal cases. And so we want to make sure they've got at least the essential blocking and tackling skills that will enable them to take cases on the bench. Can I just ask you to reflect in a personal way, to the extent that you can, to reflect on the nature of judges as you see them as human beings and as in the way they think about their responsibilities. You interact with them. What are judges like? It's been a real honor for me to actually get to know judges, particularly at the outset of their careers. Judges come to these duties, and in many cases, they have some apprehension. They recognize that this is a significant scope of responsibilities. And what I find invariably is that they come to the bench, and when they have that initial orientation where we first meet them, so many of them say, you know, I just want to get this right. They have the aspiration of ensuring that they're doing justice by the litigants, the parties, the staff with whom they interact. All who encounter these judges, their primary goal is to get it right and to ensure they further justice in, in our courts. And, that, and that's admirable. So I enjoy very much uh, the chance to start these new relationships. In the last four or five years, I suspect I've, I've met in excess of 200 new judges across the system. You've mentioned a few elements before, but I think it's important for our listeners just to hear a little bit about them. You know, the Federal Judicial Center, obviously, it's an independent agency. It's kind of a think tank and a training center, you know, I think. There's also the administrative offices of the courts, and there's also something you referred to, which is the Judicial Conference. Can you just take a moment to explain those two other elements? Sure, John. And I'll start with the Judicial Conference because it's an interesting system. The structure of governance of the federal courts and the Judicial Conference in particular is something that was only developed in the last 80 years. At one point, the federal judiciary got its funding through branches, justice, treasury, interior. You know, various branches uh, were, were how the federal judiciary was funded. And I think people realized that's probably not an ideal mechanism. And so in 1939, Congress passed an act that created this administrative office of the U.S. courts and the judicial conference as well to sit over them. So essentially, what we have is the judicial conference as the policymaking arm of the federal judiciary, and it's presided over by the Chief Justice of the United States, John Roberts. From the judicial conference, the administrative office executes more of the operational tasks of the system. Things like public affairs, legislative affairs, budget preparation, uh, security, information technology, facilities issues, a broad range of functions that enable this you know, widely distributed enterprise to function throughout the country. And the administrative office has committees, functional committees that in offices that help uh, discharge the duties. 
but ultimately they, they work under the policy supervision of the judicial conference as the governance arm. The director of the administrative office is the chief administrative officer for the U.S. courts. He has a broad range of authorities, most of which he delegates directly to those discrete units that comprise our system, those 94 district courts throughout the country, the regional courts of appeals. Can I ask you to reflect on, you know, we all know there's a Supreme Court. There's a lot of controversy these days, you know, about appointing a new justice for the Supreme Court. But, you know, it's just the kind of the tip of the iceberg, but there's a huge structure under it. And we have appellate courts, et cetera. Can you take a moment to kind of give us a feel for the architecture of the federal judicial system? Sure. And let's start with our trial courts. We have 94 U.S. district courts throughout the country and in a few territories. Every state in the nation has at least one district court and some have multiple courts. There are also bankruptcy units that are separate components within the U.S. district courts at our district courts. District courts are grouped typically with uh, those courts of adjoining states into uh, regional courts of appeals. And so we've got 12 of those regional courts of appeals throughout the country and one that's a functional court the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which hears specialized cases. Those 13 appellate courts then can feed cases into the Supreme Court, but only a small percentage of decisions of district courts are actually appealed to a Court of Appeals, and a far smaller percentage of those cases actually ever reaches the Supreme Court for decision. For example, last year, the Supreme Court issued a total of 63 decisions. And so you can see that in a system where there are half a million civil cases pending in a report I checked recently, 63 cases a year, it just shows you first the importance of the cases that actually reach the Supreme Court and the fact that the bulk of the work is done beneath the level of that great institution. And so that suggests that kind of precedence becomes an important factor within the whole of the system. I mean, if you're only going to have 63 cases resolved by the Supreme Court, you know, with all the activity of the other courts, that means there just has to be a, you know, kind of a deep structure of observing precedence and and that sort of thing. Is that right? That's fair. It is true that the law of the circuit, as it's typically called, the law of that regional appellate court within which your district court sits, is typically the law that you follow most closely because those circuit precedents are in fact binding upon the district courts that are within that grouping. And and so one would be hard pressed to say, I don't think I want to follow that circuit court precedent. You might have a reason to argue why it doesn't apply on the facts of the case you're handling, but it is certainly binding law within the circuit, within the courts that it covers. So for the work of the Federal Judicial Center, how much of your time is to kind of create horizontal knowledge across this big system so that judges in Alabama know what people are deciding in California or vice versa. Is that a factor? Probably not a significant factor just in terms of our workload, because I would say that we don't do a lot of the decisional uh, instruction to judges. I would say that in most cases, their law clerks and the judges themselves they are looking at what's the binding precedent within a local jurisdiction. What have prior decisions within that circuit, in that appellate court, said about this particular issue? So 
I would say that the federal judicial center's role more broadly is to provide a baseline of knowledge of things like how do you effectively handle cases? What are the ethical standards that govern all judges? How do the rules of evidence play within the system? In many cases, for example, judges may not have been in the courtroom for a while. So we want to give them a refresher on the rules of evidence that apply in the cases. We also teach subjects like judicial security. You know, when you take the mm. bench, your personal security is at risk. And we've seen that tragically recently with the judge in New Jersey and her family. And so we want to ensure that we give judges a baseline level of knowledge on a range of topics. So that's really important. You know, judges are appointed for life. I mean, they get to serve as long as they are physically well. And of course, that's crucial because it guarantees them independence. You know, they're not vulnerable to political pressures. But how do judges stay connected? Is it just up to them to feel the changing pulse of America? Is there a formal way that the judiciary tries to do that, and especially the Federal Judicial Center? I think the way judges adapt to changes in American society and evolve to, to meet new needs, there's really no one single method. I think it's a, it's a variety of things. First, many of the judges continue to teach, and they write, hmm. speak to groups about the judicial system. And from those interactions, they gather how people perceive the law as well and uh, what changes to the law might be suggested by those with whom they engage. Judges have law clerks they hire each year. These are young law school graduates typically. Uh, recently, actually, more have come from practice back to serve as clerks. But in, uh, in, in the typical pattern, it was freshly minted law school graduates. And so there's a little bit of a exchange between the judges and those clerks. It's a very close relationship, the relationship between a judge and, and his or her chamber's clerks. And so I think they learn from each other. Clerks learn how to handle federal cases and how judges approach their duties. The judges learn what's going on in the law schools, what's going on in the law, how, how people are talking about the law from their clerks. And of course, they engage with colleagues as well. There's typically a handful of judges in any given court. And so they'll engage with colleagues, whether in their, their own chambers or when they come to these conferences and programs that we host. So I think there's a leveling of information that way as well. And then, of course, each of us gets to go home each night. And I suspect when most judges go home, his or her spouse says, hey, take off that black robe. You're now a member of our family again. And we're going to talk, you know, we're going to talk about that. And uh, you better not be giving me black robitis tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Black robitis. <laughs> you know, I, I just think about it. It's such a remarkable institution. If I could return to the question of the judicial conference, because this is pretty unusual, but it, as I understand the judicial conference, it is comprised of a series of committees that are composed of federal judges that operate with some assigned area of jurisdictional responsibility for thinking on behalf of the entire federal judiciary. Is that right? That's a good characterization of it, John. The Judicial Conference does the bulk of its work through the functional committees that you mentioned. And so there'll be a committee, for example, on information technology, a committee on case administration and court management, a committee on the budget, 
a committee on the judicial codes of conduct or the codes of conduct. And so this functional approach that each of these committees works under, they will gather recommendations, they'll consider issues that are pending for approval, they'll, they'll consider input from affected stakeholders. And uh, the issues that they consider then flow up for ultimate approval or ratification or decision by the judicial conference as that policymaking arm, that decision authority. And then that action will flow down to those individual court units for execution ultimately. But the committees are absolutely critical aspects of the conference. And then the conference meets twice a year, typically, and the committees meet in preparation for conference meetings to handle the range of issues that are before them. So one of the crucial roles that the federal judicial system plays is to oversee the work of the Congress and the executive branch and to help us citizens understand and provide a check against unconstitutional activity by one or the other branches. Who oversees the judiciary? How does that work? That question for me, John, really reflects the genius of our founders in the system they designed, the system that we've always talked about, checks and balances, where each of the respective three branches of government has some means of providing a check and a balance to the power accrued to the other two branches. And so uh, the federal judicial system operates pursuant to an annual budgetary appropriation from Congress. Congress also specifies the organization of our judicial system in the sense of how many judges can be appointed under Article Three of the Constitution and the number of U.S. district courts that will be authorized. Congress also sets forth jurisdictional scheme for federal courts. And so occasionally jurisdiction might be expanded or curtailed depending on uh, an issue that has risen. In addition, the executive branch has a role in providing oversight to the judiciary. Executive branch nominates, as we're seeing now with the Supreme Court justice nomination process, the executive branch nominates those who will serve as judges and the Senate has to confirm the president's nominee. Executive branch has other influence as well. Of course, it directs the activities of those assistant U.S. attorneys that handle the civil litigation in which the U.S. is involved and prosecutes criminal cases uh, in U.S. District Court as well. Moreover, the executive branch oversees the Bureau of Prisons, and their policies and practices uh, are always of interest to federal judges as they seek to fashion an appropriate sentence for one who's convicted of a crime. So you've got external oversight by executive branch, by the legislative branch, but there's also practices that involve internal oversight, the comprehensive code of conduct that outlines those activities judges are allowed to do and those they are not. As you might think that with life tenure comes the expectation of conduct above reproach and judges themselves police violations of the governing ethical standards. Dana, what is the relationship of the federal judiciary and the Department of Justice? You know, you've outlined the kind of more formal role that the executive branch plays, but my suspicion is that it's a much more dynamic and interactive relationship. Could you describe that? Sure. And it's a fair question, John, because I think that there's a great deal of confusion among those who say, well, wait a minute, don't, don't you work for the Justice Department and 
In fact, my mom's one of those people who's confused. <laughs> From time to time, I'll call home and she'll say, now, Dana, remind me again of your title within the Justice Department. And I'll say, remember the Constitution. And so I'd like to address this response to my mom. Article one is the Congress, the legislative branch. Article two is the executive, which concludes the activities of the president and, of course, the Justice Department. Article three is the federal judiciary, a co-equal branch of government with a constitutional basis specified. And if you look to the Constitution, I've got a copy of my pocket guide here. Article three is the most brief article of these three branches. And what it provides is the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as the Congress may establish. That's about it. There are other provisions that extend all of about two pages in the Constitution, but it's the bulk of it is that Congress established the Supreme Court and the ability to, the Constitution established the Supreme Court and the ability of Congress to establish inferior courts, the lower courts, those courts of appeals and district courts. And so I say that because uh, the Justice Department is key in, in the work of the federal judiciary in this way. I mentioned the U.S. attorneys, the assistant U.S. attorneys and the U.S. attorneys who are involved in both defending litigation in which the U.S. has an interest. Many of the federal court cases are cases where someone has sued an official or a branch of the U.S. government. And of course, all of our criminal cases involve a prosecution by the U.S. The case is always styled as U.S. versus some defendant. And so the Justice Department has a very significant role there. We also have common interests in a range of issues, coordination and consultation among judges, assistant U.S. attorneys, federal defenders, those who can't afford privately retained counsel, and the Bureau of Prisons all have issues that involve coordination and consultation with judges. We also consult with those other entities like the General Services Administration for facilities issues and the U.S. Marshals who provide the security upon which judges rely. There's also interactions with Congress because as Congress passes new laws, they impact our system, they have effects on the prison population size, for example, uh, relief policies for defendants, and conditions of confinement, among other consequences. And you can see, for example, that with the pandemic, there would be a great deal of interest between mm. judges and the Bureau of Prisons with respect to how defendants are being housed and their vulnerability to the virus. As I look at this uh, system-wide, it is a, a small ecosystem. 30,000 employees, more or less, distributed nationwide. And the amount of the budget that actually is consumed by the federal judiciary is about two-tenths of one percent of the annual federal budget. So, from my view, it's a worthwhile investment. These days, there's a lot of questioning whether the judicial system is being infected by our politics. Can I ask you just to reflect? Now, this is you as a lawyer, longstanding legal professional, not just your role at the Federal Judicial Center, but how do you feel about this time we're in and the question of, you know, sustaining the legitimacy of our federal judicial system? John, I think that, first of all, I'm in this job in part because I am such a strong believer in the rule of law and its importance in this democratic framework under which we've been operating for 235 years and counting. I'm a believer in that system, and I've seen what happens in countries where the rule of law doesn't have the same legitimacy that we have. During my time on active duty, I was involved in looking at how we were going to reestablish rule of law in Afghanistan and in Iraq, 
I served on legal exchanges in countries like Nepal, where I saw the, the need to really figure out how the rule of law was going to advance civil society going forward. And so I am a believer in that. I think that our legitimacy as an institution ultimately depends upon the respect that we have from those who are governed by our decisions. And so I think that uh, we have to be transparent. We have to be predictable. We have to be ethical. And I think that judges ultimately are the bulwarks of the system in terms of how they interact with the people that are subject to their decision. So for example, if I'm a member of the public, how is it that I can observe a criminal trial? Can I fully appreciate the role of the jury? Do I have access to justice, affordable justice, timely justice, expeditious justice? How am I going to be treated when I'm in the judiciary? Will I be given the respect, the dignity that I think each of us demands as adherents of the democratic process? And so I, I think that the legitimacy of federal judiciary uh, depends largely on the perception of fair-mindedness, even-handedness, and dispensing justice. And that's really what our goal is every time we engage with the American public. That is a beautiful summation about what we all value, even if we don't think about it or don't understand it, but what we value as a nation and what's so crucial for the ongoing success of a democracy that does put rule of law at its core. I'm very grateful for your insights, your commentary. Before I wrap up, any concluding comments or thoughts? Dana, I would welcome them. John, I would conclude this way. First, I think we've got an institutional framework that has served us very well as a nation for 230 years and counting since 1789. I've mentioned the legitimacy that we demand and that we, we absolutely have to deliver to continue to gain the respect and the positive opinion from the public. But you know, ultimately, rule of law comes down to whether the judicial decisions that are issued, even if you disagree with those decisions, whether those decisions are given full force and effect by those whose activities they govern. That's what really is key to our system. Judges don't have a standing police force. They don't have people who can go out and execute uh, the decisions they render. They rely on others. That's the system that we've designed. And so we, we have to ensure that the decisions are given full force and effect as they have been for our history. And if we can have that assurance, we'll be in good shape. I think that's a very powerful message right about now. People will have their own preferences about how political impact manifests itself in the judiciary. But there's a transcending value to all of us, which is to understand this is a system that ultimately we all depend on. And we depend on it because of its, as you say, its transparency, its legitimacy, its fairness. And I think all of us have to realize what a precious thing this is. We've got to fight for it. You know, we've got to make sure that we stand firm that that transcending good is bigger than the politics of the day. So Dana Chipman, he's been a public servant, a legal leader in the national security field, now in the Federal Judicial Center, a teacher and a real patriot. Dana, thank you. Thank you for taking the time to do this. 
John, thank you so much. And uh, I, I look forward to seeing the good work you do to continue civics education across the nation. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.